Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we will look at how Henry Kissinger, it turns out, was actually a pretty good representative of the United States, the foreign policy actions we took, and the reasonings we gave for them over the past, you know, century or less. He embodied the idea that the U.S. is always on the side of right, the world and its inhabitants are merely a game board and pieces for us to manipulate to our own ends, and that lives, particularly foreign lives, lost in pursuit of our interests, are not of much concern. Sources today include the PBS NewsHour, The Brian Lehrer Show, The Majority Report, Democracy Now!, and The Take, with additional members-only clips from Against the Grain and The Mehdi Hassan Show. Heinz Alfred Kissinger was born in Germany in 1923 to a Jewish family. When he was 15, they fled Nazi Germany for New York. He was drafted into the American military and deployed to his home country to help with denazification. He taught at Harvard, giving him access to elite foreign policy circles until President Richard Nixon named him national security advisor and later simultaneously secretary of state. There is no country in the world where it is conceivable that a man of my origins could be standing here next to the president of the United States. The moment that would make him famous led to what Nixon called the week that changed the world, a secret 1971 trip to Beijing, ending more than two decades of mutual hostility. The next year, Nixon made his own trip, setting a path to U.S.-China normalization. In the room that day, Kissinger aide and later ambassador to China, Winston Lord. Maybe it would have happened at some point, but it was still a very courageous and controversial move in the early 1970s. This meeting set the stage for the subsequent uh, discussions and the opening up the relationship, which had a major impact immediately by improving relations with the Soviets. It helped us end the Vietnam War. It restored morale in the United States that we were an able diplomatic actor despite all our problems. It restored American credibility uh, around the world. But before he could end the Vietnam War, Kissinger had expanded it. Beginning in 1969, the U.S. secretly bombed Cambodia to try and disrupt North Vietnamese supply routes. The campaign is estimated to have killed hundreds of thousands of civilians. He had a remarkable indifference to human suffering. How many thousands of U.S. soldiers died as a result of that? How many thousands of Vietnamese soldiers died of that? His secret and illegal bombing of Cambodia resulted in 100,000 civilian deaths. But more than that, it radicalized what had been a small nucleus of, of, of extremely militant communists. That brought Pol Pot to power. And that led to the killing fields and the millions dead. I think he does have an inordinate amount of blood on his hands. By 1973, Kissinger and his team negotiated an end to the Vietnam War in Paris, where Winston Lord was again by his side. Henry and I went out in the garden and we shook hands and he looked me in the eye and said, we've done it. And this had particular poignancy because I had almost quit over our Cambodia-related policy to Vietnam a couple years earlier on that very subject. And so after all we've been through, this was a, a major moment. The moment allowed Kissinger to share the Nobel Peace Prize with his North Vietnamese counterpart. But two years later, the U.S. fled Saigon 
and North Vietnam and Viet Cong troops conquered U.S. ally South Vietnam. The withdrawal from Vietnam was an American tragedy. Kissinger never expressed regret over Vietnam or any decision. In 2003, he told Jim Lehrer the priority was to put Vietnam aside so he could focus elsewhere. All you could do is try to preserve a minimum of dignity and save as many lives as you could. Kissinger's peace efforts extended to the Middle East. In October 1973, Egypt and Syria attacked Israel on Yom Kippur. Kissinger held so many regional meetings, he helped create the term shuttle diplomacy. It helped lead to Israeli-Egypt negotiations and edge the Soviet Union out of the Middle East. Kissinger's concern over communism and his real politique peaked in Chile. In 1973, the U.S. helped the military overthrow the democratically elected socialist government and installed General Augusto Pinochet. Pinochet's military dictatorship caused the death, disappearance, and torture of more than 40,000 Chileans. But Kissinger's priority was preventing communist dominoes from falling, as he told the NewsHour's Elizabeth Farnsworth in 2001. First of all, human rights were not an international issue at the time, the way they've become since. We believed that the establishment of a Castroid regime in Chile would create a sequence of events in all of, at least the southern corner of Latin America, that would be extremely inimical to the national interests of the United States at a time when the Cold War was at its, at its height. Kissinger's Cold War strategy called for detente with the Soviet Union. In 1972, President Nixon and Soviet Premier Leonid Brezhnev signed SALT, the first limits on Soviet and U.S. ballistic missiles and ballistic missile defense. It opened decades of arms control agreements. The benefits that accrue to the United States are the benefit that will accrue to all participants in the international system from an improvement in the prospects of peace. By then, Kissinger had reached his popular and policy peak. He was charming, funny, craved proximity to power, and was, in his supporters' eyes, a steady steward of American interests. After Nixon's resignation, he remained President Ford's Secretary of State. I think his most significant achievement was holding together America and its foreign policy in the wake of Watergate and the ending of the Vietnam War. Kissinger remained untainted by the scandals, pursued remarkable diplomacy under the circumstances, uh, and maintained America's position in the world, as well as uh, restoring some morale in the United States itself. It was a remarkable achievement. But to his critics, Kissinger symbolized the pursuit of order over justice and the kind of preemptive action that paved the way for continuous war. I think he was absolutely indispensable in creating a sense of, 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 of keeping the United States on a permanent war footing. You know, there's, there's war without end in which everything is self-defense. Chile elected in a fair and free election a socialist, Salvador Allende, and Kissinger basically plotted to overthrow him, uh, saying, why should we allow a socialist country in our hemisphere just because the people in the country were irresponsible? Now, the reason why it's the darkest, it's not necessarily the most damaging thing that Kissinger did, but it's it's the one incident where 
the blame for what subsequently happened can be laid entirely uh, on Kissinger. Many other things, it could be Kissinger and Nixon, uh, or Kissinger and somebody else. But in this one, Nixon was actually about to have an appointment with a State Department underling of Kissinger's to talk about possibly forming some kind of modus vivendi with the Allende government. Kissinger got that meeting canceled and went to Nixon himself and convinced him that, no, we have to make uh, the Chilean economy scream. And he headed a secret, Kissinger, who was National Security Advisor and Secretary of State, became the chairman of a special committee, which consisted largely of CIA agents, to overthrow the Chilean government. And they worked hand in hand with the Teamsters, which organized a big trucker strike in Chile so that the economy would scream. And, uh, you know, what, what ultimately happened is that Allende was overthrown by General Pinochet, who then launched a campaign to arrest and kill thousands of dissidents, uh, during which time Kissinger told him, uh, basically, do what you need to do, and instructed the State Department not to issue any demarches against what he uh, was doing. And, and you know, later, uh, Pinochet was uh, found by the international courts to be a war criminal and was barred from, from many countries. He was almost arrested once when he went to England. Uh, so, you know, th this is something, oh, and, and, and one of the, one of the uh, murders by Pinochet and his people took place in, in the streets of Washington, D.C. Uh, yeah. An exile economist named Orlando Letelier uh, was blown up with a car bomb as his car drove by the Chilean embassy, killing him and an American colleague. Uh, you know, uh, there's, there's never been any apologies uh, for any of this. Oh, that's just what I was going to ask. If Kissinger ever expressed regret for empowering <clears throat> Pinochet and all that he brought. No, he, uh, he well, for one thing, the, the full extent of the U.S. involvement in this wasn't even uh, revealed until years later when, when Seymour Hersh uh, uncovered it for the New York Times. Uh, it was denied until documents came out confirming it. Kissinger had this, uh, you know, among many other things, Kissinger was actually a, a, a witty man. And often he would just not address charges like this. Sometimes he would kind of dismiss it with a joke. I mean, for example, one time he said something like, uh, uh, illegal things we do very quickly. Unconstitutional things, it takes a little longer. And, you know, everybody, ha, 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 ha. Mm. You know, he charmed people with this kind of thing. Uh, he, you know, there have been books. There have been whole books written about each one of, of the, the places in the world where, where Kissinger did dreadful things. Uh, one but, that you know, people probably are not very familiar with that you cite in your article is him being soft on a human rights violating coup in Pakistan, which yeah. you say led to the deaths of millions of millions. civilians. Millions? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is... Uh, Gary Bass wrote a book about, about just this uh, some time ago based on declassified documents. Uh, yeah, there was a coup in East Pakistan uh, led by a General Aga Mohammed Yahya, 
And because Pakistan was aligned with China, Kissinger against India, Kissinger did not want, there's one memo where he tells his staff, don't squeeze Yahya. And uh, Nixon and Kissinger were both very complicit in what went on. They used American weapons to to do what they did. Uh, Yeah, because, you know, the the horrible thing is that uh, things that happen in places like East Pakistan, another one was Indonesia's invasion of East Timor, Mm -hmm. which resulted in the deaths of about 100,000 civilians. These kinds of spots on the map tend to be uh, overlooked. The politics involved are very complicated. Uh, I think there's probably some racial things that that go into a lot of people just not taking a close look. Um, You know, Argentina was, was another case where there was a coup that he... Uh, turned a blind eye to the excesses of, of killing thousands of, of dissidents and making them disappear. You might remember that phrase from the time. Uh, and in fact, in, in that instance, he told uh, the foreign minister of Argentina, we would like you to succeed. Uh, that is to succeed in, in suppressing these, these, these dissidents. Uh, the bombing of North Vietnam and Cambodia, you know, those are probably the, the deadliest things. That he was involved in, but there he and he probably the, the most stage. well known. Yeah, yeah, because we were involved in, in a war there at the time, uh, so it, where thousands of Americans were getting killed too. Uh, there, you know, he shares responsibility uh, for war with 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 President Nixon as well. Uh, he also a shared of, a Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating yes. an end to the Vietnam War. Do you yeah. think that? at least was deserved or that his escalation policies helped hasten the war's end in any way? No, I think it's it's disgraceful. For one thing, it, it's long since been shown that when Nixon was running for president in 68 and Kissinger was signed on to be his national security advisor, Kissinger arranged for communications to be sent to, to South Vietnam uh, who was engaged? Whose leaders were engaged in peace talks with North Vietnam in Paris at the time, saying, "Don't negotiate. You'll get a better deal when Nixon is president." This was while President Johnson was was negotiating talks. So, and and there was progress in these talks. Now, it may not be. It may or may not be that those talks would have resulted in an end to the war, but Kissinger's communique. Uh, to the South Vietnamese leaders to hold on. Don't take any deal now. You'll get a better one from Nixon. That very well could have prolonged the war by many years and tens of thousands of American deaths. Uh, so, and, and then the, the peace treaty that he did come up with, you know, it wasn't really a peace treaty at all. It was, it was just a way t- to provide cover for an American withdrawal and, a, and an almost instantaneous collapse of the South Vietnamese government. That's one of the Nobel Prize's uh, least uh-huh. stellar chapters. Nixon and Kissinger were immensely um, deceitful in their 
what what they would say publicly about the Vietnam War and what their designs were behind the scenes after Nixon got elected and they expanded the war quite quickly after taking office. Um, you know, how and then during that time, uh, I guess when did K- Kissinger become Secretary of State? But he's the only um, sixty-nine. Secretary oh, of State was later. He later, was right? National but he security was advisor for National yeah. Security Advisor at that time, and then he's the only person to have ever held that position simultaneously. Um, so, just to give people a sense of how powerful he was, he was Secretary of State and National Security Advisor for quite a while. Um, you know what? Uh, what was that like at that time when, you know, LBJ was opening up some measure of diplomacy at the sunset of his presidency and then uh, they uh, Nixon and Kissinger come into office and expand and then also launch the secret uh, carpet bombing of Cambodia? Well, 1968, uh, people might remember, like, you know, Johnson was relentlessly bombing Vietnam and the anti-war movement was really building up at home and people were really disgusted with, with the war and the violence being inflicted on Vietnam. And, uh, you know, I remember marching in 1968 in Tokyo, Americans against the war, and we were against, you know, we, opposing the bombing of, of, of North Vietnam at the time and also all the bombing and strafing that was going on in South Vietnam. And then during the election of 68, you know, Nixon was promising a secret plan to end the war. And as, you know, as, as we all learned later, you know, Kissinger was telling anti-war folks that, you know, Nixon was really serious and, and he himself, Kissinger, was really serious and, and agreed with the critics of the Vietnam War. And then it turned out that, uh, you know, when these negotiations were going on, uh, you know, with the Johnson administration in, in, in Paris uh, to, to end the war, uh, you know, Kissinger was there feeding information from the South Vietnamese side to Nixon, and they made, they basically persuaded the South Vietnamese government and the, its military government not to go along with any agreement until Nixon came in. And this is like this really cynical action, and actually kind of treasonous, you know, to be sending like, you know, top secret information, you know, back to a presidential candidate to undercut uh, the, these negotiations. And then, you know, they, 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 then they, then they, Nixon announces, you know, Vietnamization or, you know, let the Vietnamese do the fighting and the U.S. is going to slowly withdraw. But they just use this immense power of bombing and massive, you know, massive firebombing. And, 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 you know, of course, they, you know, and, and bombed Cambodia secretly for years, invaded Cambodia supposedly to drive the, you know, clear out the Vietnamese sanctuary, so-called. But it was <laughs> such utter hypocrisy. And, uh, and you know, all this time, of course, he's, you know, working with Nixon to, to reopen uh, relations with China, you know, which was, you know, which was a good thing overall. But basically, they opened relations with China and they wanted what Kissinger later called a decent interval, uh, you know, to basically let the South Vietnamese government collapse, uh, which everyone knew it would. And that, you know, that finally happened in 1975. But, you know, it, 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 it was all done through lies and deceit. And, and uh, you know, I was glad to see Lee Duc Tho, who was the Vietnamese negotiator when they did reach these, you know, 1973 peace agreements, uh, you know, Kissinger and Lee Duc were given the Nobel Peace Prize. 
and Lee Docteau refused to accept the award because he knew what a complete, you know, hypocrite and 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 deceitful person and violent person, you know, Kissinger was. And to his credit, he refused a Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, this was a peace after just mass murder in in Indochina, and you know, so. It, you know, I, you know, I kept up, you know, I mean, that's how I got into journalism was during the Vietnam War and kind of looking at the economic uh, factors that you know, the business business role that business played in making the weapons and, and the military industrial complex and, and, and how it wanted a more war. And that's how I started in, started into journalism. But I kept pretty careful track of what was going on in the, you know, in the seventies. And, uh, you know, I think that one of the worst things he did, uh, was to give a green light when he was working for president Ford in 1975 was greeting, you know, going to Indonesia meeting with the general Suharto who had taken over in a very, very bloody coup in 1965 where over a, 500,000 people, communists and Chinese, were slaughtered in Indonesia uh, and gave them a green light to invade the newly independent nation of East Timor, which was alongside one of the islands in that archipelago there. And East Timor had just been decolonized. Portugal had let, there had been a kind of revolution in Portugal, and they had let go of their colonies. And so East Timor became an independent nation. Uh, and uh, there was oil near there. And, you know, Suhart, the, the, the government that was taking over in East Timor was a progressive government that wanted to, you know, do better its people, better the conditions of its own people. And they gave a green light for Suharto to in, invade this little tiny defenseless island that had hardly any kind of military at all. And for years, they did. And they, it was a genocide, you know, yeah. hundreds of thousands of people were slaughtered in East Timor and it was a virtually unknown kind of struggle, but it just represented the kind of, you know, he just didn't give a rat's ass about people, any other countries, you know, it's just the power of the United States and just use war and bombing to get your way. And they, and, they, and, and, you know, of course we all know what happened in 1973 uh, in Chile, where he was behind, you know, the overthrow of Allende and and uh, undercutting uh, that democratically elected government, just a disgraceful record. And you know what's really, I mean, it's just sickening to see all these political figures laud him for his statesmanlike actions and uh, what he contributed to American foreign policy. You know, yeah, he, he contributed. I, he contributed blood. Tim, I'm curious uh, to hear you reflect, like the pride of place that he's maintained in American politics. Like, has it surprised you, or is it just kind of symptomatic? Yeah, well, it's symptomatic of the way the system works. I mean, we we reward people who who uh, you know do things like this. I mean, you know, Hillary Clinton. You know, from you know, I saw Chris Christie, you know, praising him the other day. Democrats, Republicans that are in power and out of power want to get into power. They love this guy because what he represented was the ultimate use of American power to, to crush any kind of opposition to, to U.S. power anywhere in the world and, and to use the most cynical means, the most violent means, 
but that's considered, you know, statesmanlike. And 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 it's 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 just appalling, you know, to hear hear these liberals, especially, you know, praise this guy. We're having a winter membership drive to close out the year. So if you've been waiting for a special occasion to sign up or buy a membership as a gift, now's the time. We're a small team working on a small budget, and sometimes we get tossed around with the bigger ebbs and flows of the podcasting business, and we can't always depend on steady ad revenue, which is why members have always been the most important part of keeping the show running. So just because we've been around for a long time, don't think that we don't need your support, because we absolutely do. For the holiday season, membership is on discount for 20% off. That goes for gift membership as well, so grab that while you can and lock in that price for as long as you keep your membership. You'll get bonus clips and chapter markers in every episode, bonus episodes where the team get together and make each other laugh while discussing important issues, and an ad-free experience all the way around. Just head to bestofleft.com support for details. That link is in the show notes, and thanks for your support. Sage's life is, is fascinating because it spans a very consequential bridge in the United, United States history from the collapse of the post-war consensus, you know, that happens with Vietnam. And Kissinger's instrumental in kind of recobbling, recreating a national security state that can deal with dissent, that can deal with polarization, that actually thrived on polarization and secrecy and learning to manipulate the public in order to advance a very aggressive foreign policy. I mean, we can go into the details. But I do want to say that his death has been as instructive as his life. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the obituaries and 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 notes of condolences, uh, they they just it, they just I mean this they just reveal uh, I think a, a, a moral bankruptcy of the of, of the political establishment in certainly in the transatlantic world in, in, in the larger NATO sphere just an un willingness or incapacity to, to, to comprehend the, the, the crisis that we're in and, and, and Kissinger's role in that crisis. They're celebratory, they're inane, they're vacuous, um, and they're really quite remarkable. And, and, and if you think, of, you just think back over the last year, the, the celebrations, the fetting of his 100th anniversary, a hundred, you know, birthday is living to hundred years. It, it, I, I think it's a, a, a it's a cultural marker of, of just how, how much how how bankrupt the political class is in this country is. So his death is almost as instructive as his life. Well, we had you on, uh, Greg, when uh, he turned a hundred. When Kissinger turned a hundred, in that interview, you said. Uh, that the best way to think about Kissinger isn't necessarily as a war criminal. Could you explain why? Yeah, because you know, that is the way. I mean, Christopher Hitchens popularized in thinking about him as a war criminal, and that as a way of elevating Kissinger in some ways as, as, as somehow an extraordinary evil. And it's a fine line because he did play an outsized role in, in a staggering number of of. of, of, of of atrocities and and bringing and dealing misery and death across the globe to millions of people, but but there's a lot of war criminals. I mean, you know, this country is stuck with war criminals. There's no shortage of war criminals, and 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 thinking about him as a war criminal kind of dumbs us down. It it doesn't allow us to think 
with Kissinger's, use Kissinger's life to think with, to think about how the United States, for example, Kissinger started off as, as a Rockefeller Republican, you know, a liberal Republican, uh, an advisor to Nelson Rockefeller who thought Nixon was far out of, of the mainstream and a dangerous sociopath, I think, as he put it. And yet when Nixon won, and he actually helped him win by, by scuttling a peace deal with 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 with, um, with North Vietnam, uh, he made his peace with Nixon, and he, and and then he went on, you know, into pub, into public office. And he thought Reagan was too extreme, and and yet he made his peace with the Reagan. Then he thought the neocons were too extreme, and he made his peace with the neocons. Then he even made his peace with Donald Trump. He called Donald he, he celebrated Donald Trump almost as a kind of embodiment of his his theory of of of, of a great statesman and being able to, to craft reality as they as they want to through their will. So you see Kissinger as the country moves right, you see Kissinger moving with it. So just that trajectory is 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 very useful to think with. You also if you also think about his secret bombing of Cambodia. Yeah. And then trace out that bombing. It's like a, a bright light, you know, a trace of red running from Cambodia to to the current endless war on terror. What, what was considered illegal. I mean, Kissinger bombed Cambodia in secret because it was illegal to bomb another country that you weren't at war with in the 1960s and 1970s. His, his, his um, old colleagues at Harvard who were all cold warriors, none of them peace liberals, marched down to, to to Washington. They didn't even know about the bombing. They went to protest the invasion of Cambodia. And and now, uh, you know, it is just considered a, a, a fact of international law that the United States has the right to bomb countries, that third-party third, third countries that we're not at war with, that gives safe haven to terrorists. It's just considered... It's just considered commonplace. So you could see this evolution and drift towards endless war through Kissinger's life. You could also, Kissinger's also, Kissinger's life is also useful to think about how, you know, the, as a public official, first national security advisor and then secretary of state to Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford, Kissinger um, created much of the chaos that would later um, necessitate and require a transition to what we call neoliberalism. But then out of office, at the head, at, as the head of Kissinger Associates, Kissinger helped to broker that transition to neoliberalism, the privatization of much of the world, of Latin America, of Eastern Europe, of Russia. So you see that, you know, you know that, that transition from from you know a public public uh, politic politician or public policymaker, and then going on to to, uh, to making untold wealth uh, as as a private citizen in 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 this transition. So you you, you know there's a, there's many ways in which Kissinger's life kind of maps the trajectory of 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 the United States. You know they celebrated him at the New York Public Library as if he was the American century incarnate. And it, and in many ways he was. You know, he was, he really he really his career really does map nicely onto onto the, the 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 trajectory of the United States and the and the and the evolution of the national security state 
and its foreign policy and you know and, and, and the broken world that we're all trying to live in as as your last two statements Greg, uh, I, I want to go to Henry Kissinger in his own words. He's speaking in 2016 when he defended the secret bombing of Cambodia. Nixon uh, ordered an attack on the base areas within five miles of the Vietnamese border that were essentially unpopulated. So when the phrase carpet bombing is used, uh, it is, I think, in, in the size of the attacks, probably much less than what the Obama administration has done in similar base areas in Pakistan, uh, which I think is justified. And therefore, I believe that what was done in Cambodia was justified. So that was Henry Kissinger in 2016. He was um, speaking at the LBJ Library. The late celebrity chef, Anthony Bourdain, once said, once you've been to Cambodia, you'll never stop wanting to beat Henry Kissinger to death with your bare hands. You'll never again be able to open a newspaper and read about that treacherous, prevaricating, murderous scumbag sitting down for a nice chat with Charlie Rose or attending some black tie affair for a new glossy magazine without choking. Witness what Henry did in Cambodia, the fruits of his genius for statesmanship, and you'll never understand why he's not sitting in the dock at The Hague next to Milosevic. Um, if you can just respond uh, to that and— Yeah, well, that quote— it contains more moral and intellectual intelli acuity and intelligence than the entire uh, political establishment, both liberal and both Democrat and Republican. It, 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 it's a it's a morally correct, it's intellectually correct, and you know it, it's 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 more accurate than 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 most diplomatic historians who, who trade on on making Kissinger more uh, ethic morally complicated than he was. In terms of Kissinger's quote himself about Cambodia, there he's, there he's playing a little bit of a game. He's, he's lying. I mean, he carpet bombed Cambodia. He, he, the, he, the United States massively bombed Cambodia and brought to power within the Khmer Rouge the most extreme um, uh, clique led by Pol Pot. You know, when you massively bomb a country and you destroy all opposition, you tend to bring to power the, the extremists. And that's exactly why Kissinger is responsible to a large degree for the for the genocide that happened later on under Pol Pot. The, the bombing brought to power Pol Pot within the Khmer Rouge, which previously was a larger, broader coalition. But Kissinger isn't wrong when he links it to Obama's bombing of Pakistan. That was the point I was trying to make earlier. You know, Kissinger just had to do it illegally back uh, covertly back then because it was illegal it was it was against international law to bomb third countries you know in order to advance your war aims in another country but now it's accepted as commonplace and it is true he's not wrong when he cites obama's drone program and what obama uh and and, and, and you know uh you know, the, the, the continuation of the logic of the war on terror that started under George W. Bush. He's not wrong about that. And that's and that's the line that that's one of the lines that you can trace from from Vietnam and Cambodia and South Asia to 
today's catastrophe that we're living. So when you talk about international human rights and war crimes, what are the avenues to hold a public official accountable? Why wasn't Henry Kissinger held accountable, tried for war crimes? Where would he be tried for war crimes when he was alive? Well, that's a very important question. Of course, the, the modern era, let's say, of international criminal justice began 25 years ago, 1998, with the creation of the International Criminal Court on the one hand, um, and the arrest of General Pinochet in London, uh, on the other hand, uh, an international tribunal on the one hand, and, and national courts using their universal jurisdiction um, to uh, prosecute individuals on the other hand. And that's actually when, when, when we began to look seriously at the alleged crimes uh, of Henry Kissinger. Now, what's interesting is that all of these things predated, uh, I mean, Henry Kissinger's involvement in in, in Cambodia, in Laos, in East Timor, uh, in Pakistan, predated that modern era. Um, but what's really interesting is that in each of the instances I'm talking about, Cambodia, East Timor, Pakistan, there actually were tribunals set up afterwards um, to look at war crimes. So as, as you know, in, in Cambodia, the United Nations, after the Khmer Rouge fell, um, created a, 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 an international tribunal um, to prosecute the crimes committed uh, uh, in Cambodia. And, but of course, the U.S., which, which backed the tribunal, insisted um, that the, the jurisdiction of that tribunal only cover the Khmer Rouge period, not go back to the period of U.S. bombings. And in fact, every time there was a tug of war between Hun Sen uh, and the United States over the tribunal, which Hun Sen tried to, uh, in fact, did control and made sure that none of his people were, were, were involved, uh, were, 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 um, were investigated. Uh, he would threaten, said, you know, we could go back uh, and look at what you guys did. And so you had a tribunal for Cambodia. It just didn't include what the U.S. had done. Same thing in Pakistan. Um, there was eventually a tribunal established in East Pakistan um, or in, in, in Bangladesh, as it's called now, um, to look at crimes um, committed during uh, uh, the, 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 that, that, that genocide. Um, but it, too, um, did not take jurisdiction over those people who were not living uh, in the country. Um, and, and, and finally, in East Timor, um, at the very end, um, after East Timor gains its independence, uh, and, 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 and a reckoning began into who was responsible for what. Um, and of course, the East Timorese um, uh, uh, Truth Commission uh, specifically talked about the United States' role uh, in creating uh, the horrors uh, uh, and, and, and in supporting uh, the Indonesian massacres. Um, the East Timor Tribunal uh, also chose, uh, in fact, not to go back and look at the U.S. Uh, uh, period. So very rarely, I mean, and it, it was very unusual in the pre-1998 world, in the pre-International Criminal Court world, to have tribunals um, looking at past actions. In each of these three cases, you did have tribunals, but in each of these three cases, there was a choice made not to go back and look at what the United States under Henry Kissinger had done. And why was that? 
Was the U.S. behind that, putting pressure <laughs> on these countries? And also, talk about the double standard. I mean, when you look at, for example, the International Criminal Court, how often it is not um, uh, leaders from countries like the United States who are put in the dock. Well, of course, Amy, in, in, in the world I operate in of international justice, double standards is the main, uh, the main obstacle. Uh, it's the main sticking point. Um, it's very—I uh, mean, still, it's, it's never easy to bring people to justice, uh, even, even third-world dictators. Um, but it is, it is sometimes possible. Um, but international justice has always fallen flat. Uh, when it comes to dealing with powerful Western interests. Uh, we see uh, at the International Criminal Court, for instance, of course, the International Criminal Court, it should be pointed out, in 21 years um, and at the cost of $2 billion, um, has never actually sustained the atrocity conviction of any state official, not just Western, any state official at any level anywhere in the world. Um, the only five final convictions at the ICC were five African rebels. Um, but there have been attempts by the ICC um, to, to prosecute leaders, mo all in Africa, in fact. And of course, now, more recently, um, we have the, um, the, the indictment of Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. And I think, you know, many people are, are contrasting, I mean, if I would contrast, um, the international justice response um, to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the Russian war crimes in Ukraine. Um, in, that, in that case, we saw a very vigorous and, and, and heartwarming uh, response on internationally. Uh, the, the prosecutor of the ICC, Karim Khan, um, immediately uh, went to uh, and made several visits to Ukraine, a country that he called a crime scene. Um, 41 Western countries um, gave the ICC uh, uh, authority, jurisdiction, uh, or triggered um, uh, an investigation. Um, Karim Khan raised uh, millions of dollars in extra budgetary funds um, to, 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 to address the situation in Ukraine, and, 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 and within a year, of course, um, indicted Vladimir Putin. This is as it should be. This is exactly what the International Criminal Court is there for. The contrast is, um, you know, in, 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 in Palestine. Um, as, as we talked about on your show once, um, for 15 years, the Palestinian complaints um, at the ICC um, have been given this slow walk uh, by uh, the prosecutor. First, several years uh, by three prosecutors, by the first prosecutor, Luis Moreno Ocampo, um, who spent several years um, evaluating whether or not Palestine uh, uh, was a state, was a state um, before finally punting the issue. Uh, then, after the General Assembly of the UN um, determined and, 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 and recognized Palestine as an observer state, and Palest um, uh, there was a lot of pressure on Palestine uh, not to ratify the ICC uh, 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 statute. Um, <clears throat> friends of the ICC, countries like Britain, and of course, um, even the United States, put pressure on the Palestinian Authority not to ratify uh, the ICC treaty because in, they didn't want to inject justice, uh, which could uh, interfere with the peace process, which of course was not going on. Um, but Palestine did ratify the ICC treaty and filed uh, a, a request for an investigation. And then the second prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda, spent five years looking at 
whether their crimes had been committed, finally determined, uh, just as she was about to leave office, that there was um, sufficient evidence to believe that crimes may have been committed, crimes including illegal settlements, uh, war crimes on both sides, um, and gave it to this prosecutor. This prosecutor, Kareem Khan, um, has had those uh, issues sitting on his desk for two years. Um, he, he had one person in his office investigating that case. Um, and it wasn't until October 7th uh, and, 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 you know, what has happened uh, uh, since that the ICC has kind of sprung into action. Um, but the question has always been, you know, why, 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 was, why was Palestine treated differently? Um, why were the complaints, why were the issues there treated differently until now? Kissinger, in order to make sure that he benefited in 1968 in terms of getting a senior political appointment, spied on and ultimately sabotaged talks to end the war in Vietnam, a war that continued with thousands and thousands and thousands of deaths, which led directly to the secret and illegal bombings of Cambodia and Laos, all for power. Cambodia and Laos bordered Vietnam, and Kissinger ended up overseeing a secret campaign to carpet bomb them. During the Vietnam War, American planes dropped around 285 million cluster munitions on Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. A secret U.S. bombing of Cambodia that killed as many as 150,000 civilians that Kissinger authorized during the U.S. war in Vietnam. It's been called a war crime by journalists like Spencer and others. And it's what So Paul Ear remembers most. I mean, you know, they say only the good die young. I, it, it's, it, in this case, <laughs> he obviously lasted 100 years. So Paul is Cambodian-American and fled Cambodia's brutal dictatorship with his family when he was a baby a dictatorship that U.S. Cold War policy enabled, known as the Khmer Rouge. I'm a survivor of, of the Khmer Rouge, uh, having escaped uh, in uh, 76, having had the opportunities that I've had to uh, advance my education and career. Today, he's a professor at the Thunderbird School of Management in Arizona, and he's learned a lot about Henry Kissinger's role since. His involvement was far more hands-on than I knew at the time. You know, you think of these policymakers as, yeah, they write memos, but over time, having studied what, you know, how much he actually chose targets, it's clear that it was more than just policymaking. It's, 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 a, it's an involvement that's, that's unusual in its extent. And so Paul says... He would hate for history to be written in a way where Kissinger's legacy in Southeast Asia is forgotten. You know, obviously, he will be idolized by those who see him as a titan of foreign policy, of a genius who brought China to the United States and the United States to China, who served as Secretary of State for eight years as National Security Advisor, as, as the, the very man who gave us the, the phrase, there are no permanent friends or enemies, only interests but who 
obviously had severe consequences on, on Cambodia, where I was born. Over the years, there were calls from around the world for Kissinger to apologize for the bombing of Cambodia and Laos. He never did. This was him speaking about it decades later. I'm in my 90s, so I, I've heard that uh, I, I think the word war criminal should not be thrown around in the domestic debate. It's a shameful, it's a reflection on the people who use it. He went on to compare the actions he sanctioned to the Obama administration's drone campaign in Pakistan. Which I think it's justified. And therefore, I believe that what was done in Cambodia was justified. And it was a tactic that the U.S. continued to use as the war in Vietnam dragged on. On Christmas Day 1972, the U.S. launched an air war on North Vietnam to convince Hanoi to resume peace talks. The 1973 Paris peace accords followed. That marked the beginning of the end of the U.S. war in Vietnam. Kissinger was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, though it was later revealed that he had derailed talks years earlier, says Spencer. You know, shudder to imagine how many people would still have been alive had Kissinger not sabotaged the Paris Peace Accords, which ultimately... And extremely cynically, he would win a Nobel Peace Prize for. The wars in Vietnam and Cambodia were all part of the U.S. campaign to stop the spread of communism. But when it came to the Soviet Union and communist China, Kissinger turned to diplomacy. He helped Washington and Moscow negotiate their first arms control treaties. In 1972, in a move that shocked much of the world, the U.S. made its opening to China. President Richard Nixon visited Beijing. Kissinger spoke about that approach years later as well. Our strategy was to position ourselves in such a way that we were closer to Soviet Union and China than they were to each other. So that in every crisis, we had more options than they did. But it wasn't just Asia and the Soviet Union. Kissinger left his mark around the globe backing military governments to stave off this perceived communist threat in Greece, Argentina, and Chile. There was no policy uh, since to to assassinate any foreign official. That was Kissinger not long after the coup in Chile. But secret White House recordings later revealed Kissinger knew the CIA helped General Augusto Pinochet launch the coup. And not only that, the U.S. State Department had tried to warn Pinochet's government against killing his political opponents. Kissinger canceled those warnings. Sometimes statesmen have to choose among evil. For Spencer, Chile stands out in memory. It was a place where the Cold War became, perhaps you might say, its truest self. It is difficult to understand the world we live in today without understanding, particularly in a place like Chile, where with uh, Kissinger's crucial support 
for overthrowing a democratic socialist government in 1973 of Salvador Allende through the creation that followed of the, the Pinochet dictatorship and its use as a laboratory for neoliberalism, we see in a really important and direct way a template for the neoliberal age enforced by American power that we currently live in. We've just heard clips today, starting with the PBS NewsHour giving a broad biography of Henry Kissinger. The Brian Lehrer Show focused in on Kissinger's role in overthrowing governments around the world. The Majority Report discussed the secret and illegal bombing of Cambodia during the Vietnam War. Democracy Now! looked at how the ruling class in the U.S. celebrates Kissinger. And Democracy Now! also looked at why it was so hard for the world to get any accountability. And The Take connected the dots between Kissinger's role in overthrowing democratically elected governments with establishing the neoliberal order we still live with today. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Against the Grain, looking at Kissinger's main philosophical influence. Oswald Spengler wrote a very influential book that looked at the rise and fall of civilizations, used climactic language, talked about civilizations that were in their springtime and that were in their summer period and then their fall and then their winter. And Spengler is very influential among not just Kissinger, but he influenced Dick Cheney, he influenced a lot of these neo conservatives. And the Mehdi Hassan show, for a counterpoint, invited on an author making the case for Kissinger being a good diplomat that we should look to for inspiration. All the other issues that that you uh, talk about have been dealt with in great detail, but his efforts at actually trying to make peace in the Middle East has not. And so that's the justification for looking at the book. On top of that, because he is master of the diplomatic game, I wanted to see what we could learn from that. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support. Now, I'm quite sure that we've all heard enough about war crimes for the day, so I don't think I have anything to add about the person who one show referred to as the Forrest Gump of war crimes. And instead, I'll just remind you that we have about two and a half weeks remaining on our year-end membership drive. The absolute reality is that a show like ours, which isn't plugged into any massive content suggestion algorithms, think YouTube recommendations, we just have a harder time finding our audience while at the same time being more dependent on them. Paying members make this show possible and help us invest a bit in trying to grow our audience. So if you get value out of this show and or want to help others find it, become a member today. And we have a 20% off special going right now, so you can access our weekly bonus shows and all of the bonus clips that are in each regular episode at a discount. And that same offer is good for gift memberships as well, so take advantage of that while you can. All the details are at bestoftheleft.com support, and you'll find that link in the show notes.
That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or anything else. You can leave us a voicemail or send us a text to 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWendy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships. And if you'd like to join the discussion, you can join our Discord community. You'll also find that link in the show notes as well. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.